0: Okay, welcome everyone to Drisha's Spring Programming. And this is the second class in this course on exploring uh, the philosophy of Halacha with Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. We encourage you to ask questions either by unmuting yourself or by writing them uh, in the chat box on Zoom or as a comment on uh, Facebook if you're watching us live. Uh, and with that, I'll uh, turn this to you, Dr. Uh, Liebens.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Um, it's nice to see you all again. and uh, let me just give a, a quick summary about, you know, where we got to. So um, last week I was discussing a puzzle, uh, in the, a philosophical puzzle that emerges in, in, from the, the, the halachic sources. And the puzzle is how to reconcile three kind of broad principles uh, about the halacha that one can find in the halachic sources. The first principle we called pluralism, which indicates that at least in a broad range of situations, um, there are yes no questions, so to speak, in halacha, like it's either kosher or it's not, or it's pure or it's impure. Um, and in a wide array of cases, there's no right answer or privileged answer um, to those questions, uh, to those, disp- I think Dawkins calls them dispositive bivalent questions, okay? And um, that, that suggests a certain type of pluralism, where there's no one right answer. The halacha, so to speak, would be happy were, were we to rule one way or the other way. That was one principle, pluralism. Another principle was faithfulness. Uh, Faithfulness is the idea that when a legal decisor, a rabbi, a judge, a scholar, um, attempts attempts to arrive at a legal ruling, he, or in in our times, he or she, should always um, search to find the right answer. They should have in mind, I'm gonna try and find the right answer. They should be worried about going wrong. And this seems to be universal, always. Not just in those cases where pluralism doesn't hold, always. In fact, um, the prayer that we have upon entering the Bet Midrash speaks about uh, dispositive bivalent questions like that you shouldn't say that something is mutar, permitted, when it's actually asur. And you shouldn't say that something is tame when it's actually tahor. There's a slight tension between that and pluralism that we described at length last week. Um, and in doing so, we were following in the path of the philosopher Jeffrey Helmreich uh, uh, in an article uh, that, that appeared in the book that I, I had the, the honor of co-editing. Um, the book is called Jewish Thought in an Analytic Age. So I added to that uh, a third doctrine or value that the halachic system seems to have which you could call creativity. And that, that doctrine um, states that rabbis are, at least in some situations, to be praised and admired for their creat- creativity. And even in, in, in one of the starkest cases in, in uh, um, Avot de Rabbi Natan, for, for going beyond that which was said at Sinai, which is troubling since the a famous Yushalmi in Peah. That says that everything that anybody ever says that's kind of uh, wise in Torah was already said at Sinai. So, you know, how, how to reconcile that with uh, Avot Derubi Natan. Now, look, it's OK. Uh, these, you know, the the... Sources that we've been investigating were written over many centuries by many different people. So maybe just some people thought one thing, some people thought another. But the the problem we're addressing is that um, these three values are relatively central to the texts that we today are trying to kind of um, uh, tame and marshal into um, the halakhic system. In you know, or or or. or um, the texts that we take to inform uh, our efforts at PSAC, at, 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 at lawmaking. Um, so, how to kind of arrive at a way of rendering these things, these doctrines, consistent is the question I kind of set myself. Now, um, I was um, pleased that, that Rav Tversky last week um, raised a, theolo- a theological issue at the end and said, well, maybe we can resolve tension hey maybe maybe we can um resolve some of this tension if we appeal to some theological story if we understand better the the very specific human divine partnership that the halacha is supposed to represent maybe if we tell that story better or understand it better we'll find that these three principles can rest more easily side by side. And that's what I want to look at doing. And, you know, for your own reference, I I, uh, characterize myself, I don't know if other people would, and it doesn't bother me too much whether they would, but I characterize myself as as an Orthodox thinker, as an Orthodox Jew within the Orthodox world. The first text that I want to look at today is written by somebody who very much identifies with the conservative movement. Um, So you shouldn't be surprised that to find that I'm not going to endorse it um, um, uncritically. But I do think he makes um, a really important point that's gonna help us get to um, the position that, that I end up endorsing. So this is Benjamin Sommer, um, tremendous uh, scholar of the Bible, theologian, um, and 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 rabbinic thinker within the conservative movement. It, in In many respects, I think it would be uncontroversial to say that he is if not the foremost, then uh, very close to uh, being the foremost kind of um, philosophical theologian in the conservative movement today. And um, in his book on Revelation and Authority, I want to uh, concentrate on, on one paragraph with which I broadly agree. He says the following. In the year 50 CE, there was no criterion that allowed one to say which forms of Judaism were the right ones. On a purely theoretical level, nobody could prove that the traditions of the Pharisees and the earliest rabbis were Torah with a capital T, while the writings of the Qumran sect and the teachings of the Saddukin, the Sadducees were not. There was no way of knowing that. But by the year 600, it had become clear that this was the case. Why? Because the Sadducees died out, the Qumran sect died out, and the the rabbis um, in the year 600, who had kind of won the various arguments and were were very much the leaders of of the, the, the Jewish world at that time, saw themselves, whether accurately or not, it doesn't even matter, they saw themselves as the intellectual heirs of the Pharisees. So if you were living in year 50, you couldn't know if, you, if, you know, is this what, it, am, I, am I a member of the sect that ultimately, so to speak, will win out, will prove retroactively to have been Torah or not? No way of knowing. But in the year 600, we can look back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. 20 right? Uh, There's no conclusive way to explain, he continues, why the philosopher Philo's first century attempt to fuse Plato and Judaism didn't become Torah. In fact, to a large extent, Philo has more of a lasting influence over Christian theology than he, he seems to have done over Jewish theology. It's, it's not that he had no influence over Jewish theology, but you know, St. Origen um, in Caesarea, uh, one of the early church fathers was hugely influenced. Uh, by Philo in a way that it's hard to find uh, um, any particular rabbinic figure who, who was equally influenced uh, or as directly influenced by Philo. Um, but having said that, like uh, like uh, Benjamin Summer says, there's no conclusive way to explain why the philosopher Philo's first century attempt to fuse Plato and Judaism didn't become Torah. You know, at the time he was a faithful Jew, you know, probably I, I don't know the history too well, but I imagine if he wasn't, uh, uh, he, he was at least an intellectual leader of, of the, the Jewish community in Alexandria at the time, if not, you know, a recognized leader of the community, so to speak, a rabbi, although it would be anachronistic to have called him that. Um, but it just didn't take, it didn't, it didn't hold, it didn't hold. Whereas, whereas Maimonides' 12th century attempt to fuse Aristotle and Judaism did so much so did Maimonides' attempt to fuse Aristotle and Judaism become Torah that even the movements who criticize Maimonidean theology can't help but absorb some of that Aristotelian influence and you see you know um texts around the Zohar Zohar, like the Tikhane Zohar adopting the language of Maimonides so even like even those who attacked Maimonides were so under his influence that that his his attempts to fuse Aristotle and Judaism, so to speak, made a lasting impact upon the body of the Torah. But there was no way of knowing at the time that that was going to win, that was going to work. And what what Rabbi Summer suggests is that if you were living in those days, if you're living in the year 50, you can say, Eilu elu divvielu kim chayim, The process hasn't yet decided, okay? Um, If you're living in the year 600 you can no longer say that the halakha follows the Qumran sect, it doesn't. Uh, If you are living in first century Alexandria and you know, you're looking at Philo's attempts to fuse Plato and Judaism against maybe some Palestinian Jews who, who may have resisted uh, that sort of attempt. You could say, both these and these are the words of the living God. But by the 12th, by the 12th century, you can't turn around and say, oh, um, Philo is as much a part of the body of the Torah as is Maimonides. That can't be done. There's some sort of sociological process going on here. A sociological process that's understood theologically. Now, where um, Summer gets particularly uh, uh, radical, although not at all radical for the conservative movement, but where he gets radical by my lights, is he suggests that there's actually no difference between the written Torah itself, the Pentateuch, the Chumash, five books of Moses and the rest of Jewish literature he says actually they're all oral Torah they were all written by many people and and they are all engaging in a debate that 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 evolves over multiple years and therefore and multiple generations and therefore we shouldn't really cede to the um to the Pentateuch any more authority than we do to Abaye or other and he says that you know, the oral Torah begins with the first verse of the book of Genesis. And he says that, and this is this is hurtful to me as a British person, he says that the written Torah is like a constitutional monarch. Hers are the glory and the honor, but we all know that the power, the real power resides with the prime minister. He says, so too, you know, we hold the chumash up, you know, as this, book on a pedestal but we all know that the real authority lies with your oral torah and therefore there's not all that much damage done if we come to recognize in modernity that actually there's no real difference between the chumash and the rest of oral torah um that's a new revelation you could you could say uh, we've come to recognize that there's no real difference um the emperor has lost uh his clothes, right? You know, um, we we can now see through it, and we recognize this is this is all human, human divine, right? It's all human divine, but none of it is wholly divine. Um, now, that that's going to be unacceptable uh, to an orthodox audience and to an orthodox thinker, because, and this this is the way I, I, I argue in my in my book. I hate to be a, a um, shameless self self self-publicizer and the book is is very unfortunately because it was published by uh, Oxford orthodox university press no oxford university press it was published by oxford university press uh, and they very much marketed it as an academic book which it is it's it's very heavy in its philosophy um but because of that they also priced it accordingly they kind of were were um, marketing it just for university libraries, I think. So it's a ridiculously expensive book, I'm sorry to tell you. Maybe at some point it will come out uh, in, in paperback, but, but if, you, if you're desperate to read it, uh, A, I can get you a 30% discount, B, if that's still too expensive, because it is very expensive, I'm sure you'll be able to get it out from a good library. Um, in the book, I quote this passage of Summer and I uh, um, try to unpack his thinking. I say, well, there's something deeply untraditional about relating to the chumash as anything but the unmediated word of God, right? Because that's how the oral law relates to it. Now it's true. And we've seen that the rabbis have quite an extensive toolkit if they don't like something, so to speak, in the chumash. They can circumnavigate things they don't like. But two things need to be noted. First is that they feel they need to go to that effort to reinterpret things in the Bible. Whereas if it's other rabbis, they're more free just to say, no, you're wrong. They don't say to a verse, no, you're wrong. They reinterpret it. First, they feel the need to do that. Secondly, it seems as if their toolkit isn't omnipotent there are some times where the rabbis just seem to bang their heads against a verse or against a, a, um, a passage in the Torah where they can't they can't find a way around or they don't feel able to, maybe in, in that time or place, maybe forever, I don't know. But I, I don't think, we've said this last week, I don't think it's as simple as saying where there's a halachic will, a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way, because sometimes you do see rabbis struggling. You know, I, I, I like to tell this uh, story, um, I, I knew a rabbi whose mother was elderly and uh, had taken it upon herself to walk to shul um, for parshat zachor, to hear parshat zachor read. And it would be hard for her to walk to shul, she was elderly, invalid, um, but she would go because she really, really loved to be makai mitzvot. And, and this is something she had done all throughout her life, but now she couldn't hear without the help of an electric hearing aid. And it's absolutely fine to wear a hearing aid on Shabbat. None of the uh, uh, halachic decisors have a problem with that. The question was, would her hearing the reading of Parshat Zachor through her hearing aid um, facilitate the mitzvah or not, would it count? Purely technically. And this question was taken to Rav Shlomo and Orbach. It was a saintly uh, halachic decisor of of the previous generation in Jerusalem. And the rabbi who I know took this question to him and he said, let me think about it. He went away and and I don't think he had to think about too many questions because he had the sources at his fingertips. He went to think about it. And when he came back, he told this rabbi that your mother can no longer accomplish this mitzvah because you have to do it with the, with with your own hearing and as he said this some zman was crying and therefore one can imagine that he went to tremendous length to try to find the loophole but he felt that he had failed and and i think that that um that this happens with people with real integrity and real sincerity sometimes don't feel they can um, navigate their way around uh, earlier texts, especially the chumash. So I think that a theology of Jewish revelation has to retain the privilege that the chumash receives if it wants to be a traditional account, if it wants to be faithful Uh, to the tradition itself you know Benjamin Summer could defend himself and I think he would he would just say look I'm not trying to give you an orthodox account of revelation I'm a conservative Jew fine but I'm not I'm an orthodox Jew and I want to give an orthodox account of revelation but I want it to be plausible I want it to be uh, robust Um, I recognize there are serious questions about the authorship of uh, the chumash right that the the biblical criticism has raised over Various generations, and um, I have things to say about that in in my book. Uh, I actually think some of the questions raised by biblical criticism are much less pressing than they're made to look. But that's another that's another issue. I just want to share with you briefly the upshot. What do I think Revelation is, and ultimately? I want to say the following and I'm going to read to you what I, what I call the second principle of Judaism. And the entire part of part two of my book leads up to this. So I'm giving you massive shortcuts here, right? But we'll, we'll read through it together. Okay, here it is. I suggest that Orthodox Judaism basically needs to believe something like this. At an event at Sinai, God gave an endorsement to a religious tradition that would evolve among the nation of Israel. So that says, we believe there was an event at Sinai and we believe that its main function, that event, was a divine endorsement of something that would evolve out of it, okay? That tradition, the tradition that evolved out of Sinai would one day come to view The Pentateuch, the Chumash, as a sacred written constitution, never to be amended. That's how the Jewish people at least evolved to relate to the Chumash. And whether or not it will be amended in the time of the Messiah is actually a dispute. Maimonides says it will never be amended. Rav Yosef Albo suggests it could be amended but only with a second Sinai-like event, an event as miraculous and as public to the entire nation. Okay, God's endorsement of this process, it demands that today we should relate to the Pentateuch as if it were dictated word for word by God to man, which perhaps it really was, but perhaps it wasn't. That doesn't really matter. What matters is that God has endorsed a tradition which came to adopt this attitude as a central part of its, of its outlook. So whether or not this is an historically accurate account of the genesis of the Pentateuch, which perhaps it really is because, because as I said, I have things to respond to the biblical critics who think that that's terribly naive. But whether or not it's a historically accurate account of the genesis of the Khumash. God certainly foresaw that this attitude, uh, sorry, he, God foresaw that the religious tradition stemming from Sinai would at least evolve to endorse this attitude as central to its very identity. Accordingly, even if God didn't write the Pentateuch word for word, which he may well have done, it is, as if God has now appropriated the text of the Pentateuch as his own, by his very appearance at Sinai, giving this endorsement to an an unfolding uh, tradition. Now, the Pentateuchal text is only one part of the Torah. That which is fixed is the words, not their interpretation. God also endorsed at Sinai, the process of evolving traditions and interpretations that the faithful of Israel would develop over time, including their relationship with other books of the Bible. Now there may be wrong turns from time to time, but guided by Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God, the general trajectory is such that the unfolding content of the revelation through the religiously observant communities of the Jewish people, brings the content of the earthly Torah ever closer to the content of the heavenly Torah. Maimonides Maimonides has 13 principles of Judaism, but each one can be said in just one sentence. I have three, but they're all very long paragraphs like this. Now, the thing is, what, what am I saying here? I'm saying something that's inspired by Benjamin Summer, which is that God, is endorsing a process and we live not at the end of it, we only live in the middle of it. So at any given time, we can't know for certain which community among the various faithful Jewish communities trying to live their life in response to Sinai, we can't know which one he's, he's endorsing because a consensus hasn't emerged yet. So the best we can do is go with what seems right to us, I suppose, be authentic, do the best you can, see which seems right to you, which seems most sincere to you, integral to you, which coheres with your ethical viewpoint as much as it coheres with your reading of the text. There's gonna be a give and take. Sometimes you might say, look, actually my ethics disagrees with these verses and these rabbinic words but all in all sometimes my ethics might be wrong and the rabbis might be right sometimes I you know sometimes my ethics is going to guide me to choose a different rabbi there's going to be what philosophers call a reflective equilibrium here but what you can do is you can rest assured that in your day and age because it hasn't yet been decided but and therefore, God, so to speak, he demands that you do your best. And doing your best is to attach yourself to an interpretative tradition among the faithful of Israel. And in, until some of those debates are settled, uh, you can't know whether you've picked the winning side, but that's okay. Because, Eilu kim chayim. at least until it gets settled. Now, in this paragraph, I write write about an earthly Torah and a heavenly Torah. Now, I don't wanna say too much about that in this class, but the idea is that the rabbinic sources themselves, centrally, and I trace this in the book, you can find uh, slight allusions to it, perhaps even in the Chumash, certainly in Nach you find allusions to it, in the book of Ezekiel, and in in proverbs uh, in particular, in the earliest of midrashim, the halachic midrashim, in the in both Talmuds, in 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 almost every collection of midrash you dare to, dare to deign to look at, among the gaonim and the rishonim, right? Uh, so so multiple generations of rabbinic figures, you find talk of a heavenly Torah, a Torah that existed before the world was created. This is a deep principle of Judaism that 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 is difficult to um, to push to one side with allegorical and figurative rereadings, because even if you do that you have to say okay but what's this a metaphor for it's very central and it repeats through multiple generations of the text it never seems to disappear so I interpret it as this idea that there's an ideal Torah like a Plat- platonic Torah so to speak, how the Torah will read in the end of days. And there's the Torah that we have in our hands today, which is our best approximation of what God's will actually is. And that's the earthly Torah, this this evolving, unfolding tradition that God gave a stamp of approval to. Does that mean that God approves of every single conclusion drawn along the way? Like the misogynistic conclusions drawn along the way that hopefully we're overcoming or the racist conclusions drawn along the way that hopefully we're overcoming no he gave an endorsement to a process and he said look if you live in a particular generation and you do your very best to to, to live faithfully within an interpretive tradition and part of living faithfully within an interpretive tradition might involve challenging it pushing it as the more liberal rabbis have always done, part of living within a faithful uh, 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 community might also be about resisting change. And there's a kind of sociological give and take and the, the, the revolutions and, and, and uh, new insights that survive that sociological process are the ones that God has endorsed. Um, and, and basically the second principle of faith is that we're, we're moving closer, ever closer to the heavenly Uh, Torah so this gives us this idea and this is how I think we can make sense of the pluralism there's this thing called the heavenly Torah and then you have here in this picture two different uh bate midrash right And, and they're both learning Torah and what they're trying to do is they're trying to apply a textual tradition to their own day and age and they might do this with tremendous sincerity and integrity and they might do it differently. So you get like a schism within the earthly Torah, the earthly Torah that's being learned in one Bet Midrash and the earthly Torah that's being learned in, in uh, another Bet Midrash. And God endorses this process. It's not saying, elu ve'elu divrei emet. It's not saying both of these are true or both of these are equally good. God might have an opinion as to which one's better. And, and in the end of days, uh, we hope that the best one will be the one that wins out. But he does say, they're both the words of the living God, so to speak, God endorses them. God says, if you're doing your best within this system, and you came up with earthly Torah on the left, and these guys came up with earthly Torah on the right, then that's a legitimate way of serving God. You must serve God within one earthly Torah or another, so to speak. And as consensuses emerge among the various faithful communities of Israel, some of these earthly Torahs will be put to one side. Say, oh yeah, you know, in, in the year 50, Qumran and, um, and the Sadducees, they had an equal claim to being, having the imprimatur of Sinai um, uh, elevate their words, but no, now no longer. And we can say that too about, about uh, halakhic stages which we have evolved past. Um, but this system does privilege the Chumash, uh, uh, the Pentateuch in a way that Benjamin Summer isn't willing to do. Because it says that God gave a stamp of approval to a tradition that came to treat the Chumash in a very different way to other texts, as godly, as God's own word, to be reinterpreted for sure, even, reinterpreted into oblivion, uh, but always to be cherished in a quite different way to the words of the oral law. Okay, um, so that's elu va'elu. And in, in a sense, that that's how I think we can reconcile all these doctrines. Elu pluralism isn't that two sides of a contradiction are both equally true or equally right, but merely equally procedurally legitimate at certain stages in history and the reason why God can 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 value human creativity is because it's human creativity inspired by God that's actually going to push the earthly Torah closer to the heavenly Torah and the reason we need to try to be faithful is because we can make mistakes we can follow our own egos rather than the weight of the tradition and we can take wrong turns in history, through our, through our failing, failings, we can actually make rulings that bring that, the, the um, earthly Torah slightly further away from the heavenly Torah. Because like I said, even though, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, um, the, cor- the course of history, the, 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 the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The idea is that things can take wrong turns from time to time. So yes, it's an article of faith, I think, for the Orthodox Jew, that generally the trajectory of halakhic evolution is in the direction of bringing the earthly Torah ever closer to the heavenly Torah. But, but, but wrong turns can be taken from time to time, and that can be your fault. Right? So, we, so, that, so that explains faithfulness. So I think that in the, in the context, of understanding a kind of doctrine of revelation, we understand the halachic process better in a way that reconciles these three, I think, very central even cardinal doctrines of the rabbinic value system, pluralism, faithfulness, and creativity. That was supposed to be the end of class one. So welcome to class two, everybody. But before we do, let's take some questions. Anyone wants to ask? I see something in the chat.
0: Yeah, we have a question in the chat. Uh, so the heaven heavenly- story is
1: the right answer that will be re- be revealed in Messianic times. Yes, in a sense, you know um, that's a, that's a legitimate way of boiling it down. There's a lot more to it than that, and there are questions to ask. Well, why doesn't God give us the right answer straight away? Right? Uh, why why make you know why force us through this arduous process? And there is a there is an idea that the fruit that is harvested in partnership between divine and human hands is somehow more valuable. So the right answers uh, will will be somehow more valuable through having been arrived at this very arduous process than having been given straight away. There are other reasons why it had to be given through this long and arduous process because sometimes the ancient Near Eastern society into which um, the Torah was first revealed simply wasn't ready for some of the truths of the heavenly Torah, right? Um, But yes, in a nutshell, the heavenly Torah, I suppose, is the right answer that will be revealed in messianic times. Uh, That's how I'm looking at it. Yes, uh, Nachum.
2: Hi, how are you? I'm not sure how your interpretation as presented this morning, afternoon is so different than summer. Um, You quote, you know, a particular, you know, Rav and Eretz Israel on a hearing aid question. Mm. I'm not an expert in that question, but I've Mm. also heard, you know, not necessarily about you know, Megillah, but about the device yeah. itself. Ramosha Z- like weighed in. weight and and, and, and and perhaps I don't want to quote this incorrectly, you know, said that there are types of hearing aids that are really like okay. the ear. And as such, you know, can certainly, you know, be Yotze the Megillah. Now, yes. how, how, you know, like, so for me in my own, bottom line business like way, it's not so much not knocking your theology and philosophy. Thank you. That's who calls the shots. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's very much not influenced by a lot of this epistemology, but ultimately the governance of that individual yeah. and the yeah. weight that people place on him. It's
1: on him. Yes. Yeah. So let me let me respond let me respond to that. I think I understand the mul- su- some of the multiple aspects of your question. So the superficial level, let me just say, as a disclaimer, I don't know much about the halachot of hearing aids or the, the halachic literature yeah. or the relevant source material, and and um, I imagine, you know, perhaps and Hashanah had a different opinion to Rav Moshe. I don't know. I've not looked into it. Or perhaps the technology had changed between one question and the other question. Or yeah. I, I I don't know. The but the 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 relevance of the example is that here you have, have a guy. We have no reason, God forbid, to doubt the sincerity of Shama Zaman Orbach and his tears. These weren't crocodile tears, right? Um, <laughs> therefore, just at the level of human psychology, what I see is a person who desperately wants to say yes, but feels compelled to say no, okay? And, that, and, and all I wanted to bring from that, from that example is that that sometimes happens. Now then, you said, "Yeah, but, but like, who, who chose him?" Another part of your question is like, "Yeah, but who chose him?" Not to say anything bad about him; he was a tremendously saintly individual. But why put that on his shoulders? I'd say that, given my, given my kind of theology and epistemology of Jewish law, metaphysics of Jewish law, the power. Is diffuse, but the, but one of the main you know uh, uh, around a number of different centres. But one of the main centres is what I call, and I, I take this from Tamar Ross actually, who was who whose views I think have, have changed since her publication of the of uh, expanding the Palace of, of Torah. But I'm very much still in favour of some of the things she says in that book, although I think she's now a little bit more radical, perhaps. I don't want to speak for her, but she uses this phrase the community of the faithful or the communities of the faithful because she recognized there are a number of them and that that within the nation of Israel there are a number of communities who see themselves as trying to live their lives in response to Sinai and within each of those communities you have something you could call a form of life informed by their their interpretations of these canonical texts and it's those forms of life, those forms of life, I want to say, which get, so to speak, a provisional stamp of approval from God for us in our times, doing the best that we can. Now, in the society in which um, Rav Shemizam and Orbach lived, there was a form of life that that, so to speak, selected certain individuals and placed a great deal of authority on their shoulders. And I suppose, given my um, metaphysics and, and ethics and theology of um, halacha, whether or not that was actually the right thing to do they were, that, that form of life was doing the best it could it was sincere and it was integral and the idea is that I suppose but I think even deeper to your question is whoever gets asked the question even <laughs> if you live in a community where each person just decides for themselves okay if it's really Um, a question that you take seriously, you know, how does this evolving tradition relate to this question of hearing aids, if that's a question you take seriously, sometimes you'll be able to find a yes, whereas Shlom Zaman Urbach wasn't able to, right, with equal honesty, equal integrity, equal sincerity, and if you do, great, but my experience, just as a sociological observation, is that most people who do this with integrity sometimes find they can't say yes to something, which suggests to me that in, in any given time, in any given time, there are limits to how flexible the Halakhic system can be. Now, what's interesting is what were red lines for one generation of Poskin, not red lines for another. Right, I think there were, there, there were rabbis who would say, oh, you know, I wish we could make more room for f- women's participation in, in ritual life. I wish we could, and I've really tried. I've looked through all the sources, and you know what? I couldn't find anything, and I believe some of them, some of them were probably inevitably infected by a certain patriarchal um, attitude, and despite saying they wanted to find leniencies, they didn't want to find, and they wanted to hold on to their male privilege and their whatever. But I imagine that some of them were actually being quite sincere. As they saw the texts, and as they understood the halakhic system, as they, and as they understood flexibility of the halakhic system, they couldn't see a way. And now we live in a generation where people who think of themselves as equally orthodox don't see any problem. They don't see any problems. They don't see that. They, but you know what? Even they find there are some things I can't say yes to. Why can't they say yes to? Because they are trying to live their life in response to what they take to be a real ongoing revelation. The terms of that revelation change from generation to generation. Does that address it? I can't, you know, answer all. I think your questions, but does that does that help a little bit to illuminate at least my attitude to these things?
2: My response is it helps yeah. a little. Um, mm-hmm. It's a longer, you know, conversation, you know, over a glass of wine, you know, it's where I can really say what I want.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these so these are really difficult. These hopefully, really difficult. the world
2: will open up and we'll have occasion oh, to do oh, that. I look forward to it. I look forward
1: to it. <laughs> Any other questions before we move into uh, what I'll do in the first fifteen minutes of what was going to be class two? Um, I'll, I'll set up some of the the things I want to be talking about next week. Basically, any 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 other questions?
2: Hello. I don't know what magically occurred. Uh, I do not understand this. I don't assume it's divine, uh, but it's That's clearly
1: divine, but... Wendy. <laughs>
2: But it is clearly electrical. Yes. And a lot of this whole thing that bothers me uh, cons- does with electricity. I wear hearing aids. Mm, mm, mm. There a number of things. There's a lot of things that because of modern things that we have, I'm able to do. Yeah. Um, if I were to not wear the hearing aids on Shabbat mm-hmm. I would be consigned to staying home.
1: Yes. Don't get me wrong. I don't know of any halachic authority who says you can't wear hearing aids on Shabbat. Everyone says you can. Yeah. This was just yeah. a very technical issue.
2: Oh, certain obligations.
1: That's right. So, so on the, in this instance, he said, there's one obligation you can't fulfill. Mm. And he thought it was tragic. And I'm not sure he's right because you know, the, you know, hearing aids may have changed. There may be other halachic opinions. I was using it merely as an example of one person, yeah, who, who came to a question with sincerity and integrity and a desire for leniency, who felt, for whatever reason, that he couldn't find a loophole. He couldn't. He wanted to, um, but I, I don't feel qualified to address the actual halachic issues of uh, you know electricity on Shabbat. This, but. But but a lot of what, electricity. What, this, is about what counts as work?
2: What, well, that's, uh, an what counts work that's an interesting question. That's an interesting. Shabbat. That is not work physically now. Turning on a light.
1: Well, look, Wendy. The, uh, there are two. There are two issues here. A the is work? Is, a, 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 the, a, there are two oh, issues yeah. here. The first issue is a local issue about Shabbat, right? And what does work mean? And traditionally. Long before the invention of electricity, the rabbis didn't understand the word malachah, this forbidden activity. They didn't really understand it as work, not, not in the English uh, sense of the word. They understood it as a distinctively human manipulation of the environment called malachet machshevet. Right? Um, so it's not about how hard one labors. You know, The rabbis said you could run up and down the stairs as many times as you like on Shabbat. You can carry heavy things on Shabbat within an Erev. There's no limit to how many press-ups you can do on Shabbat. So it, was, it wasn't really about work. It, it, it harks back to the building of the temple, or the Mishkan, the tabernacle more precisely, but also to God's creation of the earth in six days and his cessation of a certain type of activity on the seventh day. But it's distinctively human manipulation of the environment um, that is symbolically ordered around 39 types of activity. So it's not about how hard or, 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 um, or, or easy a particular activity is. It's what that activity symbolizes. Now, whether electricity is actually forbidden on Shabbat is itself a massive debate because it's not so easy to find any of the 39 categories to which it applies. But there was an almost universal consensus, almost, among the decisors uh, that, that it should be forbidden. And I kind of get why from the spirit of the law, because what could be more distinctively human manipulation of the environment than, than kind of manipulating the flow of electrons uh, for for human ends? Um, so in fact, actually, I, th- I I think that that the prohibition of electricity, fits beautifully into the spirit of the law of Shabbat. I'm not sure how well it fits into the letter of the law of Shabbat because I don't know which of the 39 malachot it falls under. But, but that issue is, is, is separate to the philosophical issue I wanted to bring to bear, uh, or, or I wanted to bring to light in this class, which is just how should we be living? And my suggestion is that, that, that Orthodox Judaism says the following, bottom line you should be trying, oh, I, I don't know why my camera came off, but you can, it seems that you can still hear me. Yes. Yeah. Um, you should be trying to live your life um, in response to Sinai. And the best way to do that is to attach yourself. And my video, my computer seems to think my video has disappeared. I'll sort that out in a second. But is to attach yourself to a community um, that that is faithfully trying to live uh, in response to Sinai. And if you do that and you live within the form of, of life of a community that faithfully strives to live its life in response to Sinai and in response to the historical legal traditions that flew out from Sinai, then you can at least say to God, look, I did my best. I may have, I may have, Followed some wrong branches or wrong turns from from time to time, but in the day and age in which I lived, those wrong turns still uh, fell under the uh, the notion of elu elu olakim chayim. So th- so that so that's my that that's my idea, um, and that's ultimately why I uh, I um, try to live my life in accordance with the f- with with a form of life which is recognisably orthodox, because I take the Orthodox communities to which I belong to be a, a communities of the faithful. Uh, I take the form of life which they endorse, therefore, to have the provisional stamp of uh, Sinai. But What's interesting and perhaps liberal about my theology is it recognizes that reformed Jews, conservative Jews, secular Jews, whether the Orthodox like it or not, those Jews also play a role in the revelation because they, uh, they shape Jewish culture over time. Orthodoxy has been shaped by conservative Judaism. Conservative Judaism has been shaped by reformed Judaism. We've all been shaped by one another. And therefore, you know, all of our communities play a role um, in, in this, what I take to be a divine process. Um, I don't have time to start class two today. So class one took two classes, but I'll, I, just wanna, I just wanna raise the first question question. I'm, I'm sorry that my video died. Uh, I, I know how to save it, but it means me logging out of Zoom and coming back in, and, and I don't think it's worth it for the last two minutes. Um, Socrates asks a question in in uh, Plato's dialogue called the Euthyropro, and the question is, why does God love piety? I mean, in the original, it's why do the gods love piety? Why do the gods want you to do good things? Why do they love goodness? And Socrates can only see two options. Either God loves goodness because goodness is good, right? It's good independent of God. God loves it because it's good. That's option one. Option two is no, it's only good because God loves it. That's what we mean when we say something's good. We mean God loves it. If murder is bad because God hates it, but if murder—if God had loved murder, then murder would be good, right? So those are the two options. It's called, it's known as the Euthypro Dilemma. And the, the classical question is, is there some sort of ethical um, code that binds even God? Is there an ethical code that it's external to God? And this is going to become relevant to our understanding of what halakha is. Okay, so in the first class, I was trying to reconcile three conflicting principles that guide the process of of making halakhic rulings, of psaq halakha. But here I'm gonna be asking in the second class a more general question about what halakha is and how it relates to ethics, right? Uh, is there, you know, is, is the, halakha, is the hal- is, is halakha supposed to be equivalent somehow to Jewish ethics? Or is there an ethic that's external to the halakha? Are there, could, it, could there be unethical halachot, And can there be ethical demands that are beyond the halakha? And this question is at least analogous to the question that Socrates asks. Can there be an ethic external of God himself? Um, Steve wants to ask could you discuss psik ratio, which is the notion of unintended consequences in halakha so back in the day you could have been well intentioned to cut the head off a, of a chicken to make a toy for a child on Shabbat but you can't because you're actually doing work or killing which is not permitted on Shabbat right? I don't know exactly what you want me to relate to about psik ratio Steve but it's an interesting example because it shows you the extent to which um, it's distinctively human manipulation of the environment, which is forbidden. And one of the elements of distinctively human manipulation of the environment is the extent to which it's intentional. So activities are not forbidden on Shabbat if in some sense or another, they're not they're not thought to be purposive, intentional, uh, human. Uh, that's a useful discussion in, 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 in order to help Uh, Wendy come to understand why the rabbis might, you know, what the rabbis might mean by work rather than, um, rather than anything exhausting. Um, But it's not so germane to the question of the second class. Um, And I just wanted to point out there have Aaron Lichtenstein, was my Rosh Hashiva, and, and Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is my PhD supervisor's, PhD supervisor's, PhD supervisor, um, um, they, they take opposite sides to this question. And it's just, I, I just want to read you two little quotes before we sign off, just to give you a taste of what's to come next week. Rabbi Lichtenstein writes, as Benjamin Witchcote, the 17th century Cambridge Platonist pointed out, one can't ask, Shall then the judge of the whole earth not do justice? One can't ask, right? One can't ask the question that Abraham asked of God when God said to Abraham of his plan uh, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So one can't ask that question unless one assumes the existence of an unlegislated justice to which as it were, God himself is bound. And which one might add, man can at least apprehend sufficiently on his own without the revelation of the Torah to ask the question. Or again, any attempt at rationalizing halakha, an endeavor already found in Chazal in the Talmud. Very often, you know, there's this notion, Ein dorshin in Tamiya Mitzvah, there's this notion that you're not, that's a phrase of the rabbis that's found in numerous places in the Talmud. It means we don't make inferences based upon the rationale for the commandments because we don't know what the rationale is for the commandments. We just do what we're told. But however much the rabbis say that, it's not true. You can find numerous cases in the Talmud where we learn about the nature of the law based on a presumption of its rationale. We know when the law applies and when it doesn't apply based upon presumptions about its rationale. And says Rabbi Lichtenstein, any attempt at rationalizing halacha, an endeavor already found in Chazal, although much more fully elaborated by the Rishonim, the medieval commentators, presupposes an axiological frame of reference, some sort of ethical framework that's independent of halacha, that you can have access to independently of halacha, so that you can try and kind of assess or evaluate the halacha in light of that framework. So it seems like uh, Rav Lichtenstein comes down quite firmly on one side of the euthypro dilemma. And he says God loves good because good is good, good is good independently of God justice is just independently of God things aren't good because God says they are things are good inherently and God loves them because they're good and it's because there exists this independent good that we can ask God are you sure that's okay what you're doing right and it's because we believe in this independent good that we can ask hold on a minute you know is this halakha ethical is our current interpretation of the halacha ethical I've got 30 seconds to read you Wittgenstein's quote Wittgenstein disagrees he says on my view the the first interpretation is the deeper which it's the one I've been calling the second that is good which God commands things are good only because God commands them why is murder bad because God doesn't like it no other reason no why is charity good because God likes it no other reason no Wittgenstein thinks that's deeper why for so this blocks off the road to any kind of explanation. Why is it good? Why is charity good? Why is justice good? Why is good good? Because I says, shut up. Those are silly questions. Those are things which are primitive and can't be explained. Don't think you can explain why goodness is good. These are, there are brute moral facts out there. The second interpretation, which says that, uh, um, oh, God commanded this because this is good and God forbade that because that is bad. That second interpretation is the shallow rationalistic one in that it behaves as though that which is good could be given some further foundation. It behaves as if you explain, it, it explains as if, sorry, it behaves as if you can explain fundamental moral truths which are actually just brute truths and when you say that the good is good because God commands it you recognize that there's no more to be explained something like this what do you mean by good you mean something like the nature of God what do you mean by bad against the nature of God and that's it no more to be said don't think you can explain further anyway uh, that's the youth Pro Dilemma. That's uh, how you can see Rav Aaron, using his his um, encyclopedic Jewish knowledge and secular knowledge, came to the conclusion uh, that one side of the Euthypro Pro Dilemma was uh, the right one, and Wittgenstein, with a certain kind of mysticism, uh, comes to the and, and deep religious mysticism comes to the other uh, conclusion. Next week, we're going to look at how these deep philosophical questions actually impact upon the halachic system itself uh, and impact upon our understanding of what halacha is. Okay, um, that will be next week. And you'll be able to see my face again. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> the the, the uh, PDF slide, not the PDF, the, the PowerPoint slides will be available for anybody who wants them at the conclusion of the third class.
0: Okay. Nahum, did you have a question? I, I uh, noticed that you unmuted yourself. Did you have a quick question?
1: No, oh,
2: I'm great. Okay. thank you. This okay. has been wonderful. Okay,
0: sounds good. Thank you. Okay. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lee Vince, uh, for this uh, second class of this session. I'm looking forward to uh, next week. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on uh, Zoom right here on Drisha Live and on Facebook. Uh, we continue our spring program this evening at 8 p.m. with a class on what is halakha, the fascinating history of an essential term with Rabbi Zukier. And in addition, we have many um, more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. Or you can watch live at www.drisha.org slash live. You can also find recordings of uh, previous classes uh, right there. So thank you again, Dr. Levens, for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, so everybody.
1: Much. My face again. will be back connected to my head, I hope, next week. We can't
0: right. wait. Wonderful. <laughs> Okay, perfect. So I hope to see uh, you next week and everyone else uh, at our other classes as well here at Drisha.